Welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have conversations about organ tissue and eye donation and transplantation. You can always find us at thegiftedlife.org. I'm Lori Steele. I'm Joey Boudreaux. I'm Sarah Blakemore. Today on The Gifted Life. We'll be learning about an organization that's celebrating 15 years of bringing hospitals, OPOs, and transplant centers together to advance the industry. And we're going to talk about some myths about happiness. Myths about happiness. Mm -hmm. All that and more right here at thegiftedlife.org. Here on the Gifted Life Podcast, we are excited to welcome Carrie Hobson Pope. How are you? Hi, how are you? Thanks so much for inviting me. Yes, thank you for taking the time. Uh, Carrie serves as the executive director of the Alliance. And so we were like, hmm, who knows about yeah. the Alliance? Joey, you know a little bit. We I had to get do. some research from you. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, so so a little bit of historical uh, context. Uh, so in, in 2006... Uh, Tommy Thompson, the uh, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, recognized the need and the gap that was there with education uh, and and basically sharing of best practices, collaborating between the donor hospitals, between you know your everyday hospitals, uh, regular hospitals, the transplant centers, those hospitals that do transplants, and the OPOs, the LOPAs, the Organ Procurement Organizations. So. Uh, so that's where the Organ Donation and Transplantation Breakthrough Collaborative was formed. And we would go, you know, regularly at that time to, to different meetings and such and share so many of the best practices and, 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 and uh, educate and, and, you know, spawn education trainings and things like that to where we saw so much of an uptick, so much of a sharp increase in the donations and transplants. And it was a direct result from the, the collaborative as we know it. And of course, you know, that was a, a couple years or so. And then, and then as I, I understand, and Carrie, you can certainly correct me if I'm wrong or, or guide me in the right direction. Um, I've always understood the alliance pretty much was spawned from that and, uh, and that idea of continuing the collaboration. That's right, Joey. That was a that was a fantastic overview. Thank you. Um, you're absolutely right. The alliance emerged from the breakthrough collaboratives. So this year we are fortunately celebrating our 15th anniversary, and we're we're really honored to be serving this community for the last 15 years. Um, the first the first board meeting was actually on, in February 2006. So uh, it's been a lot of a lot of change, a lot of um, a lot of uh, wonderful opportunities to, to bring innovation to the community uh, over those last 15 years. And yet, Joey, just to kind of build upon what you shared, I think uh, one of the major tenets of the Breakthrough Collaboratives was, the, was this basic premise that every single day innovations are taking place and best practices are created across the country. So we really are building upon this uh, all, all teach, all learn approach. So as new opportunities and innovations emerge from different parts of the country, we do our best at the Alliance to make sure that it's brought uh, to others across the nation as quickly as possible so that everyone can benefit. So you talk about the all teach, all learn. And that was one thing, you know, I can remember 
quite uh, vividly. And and I actually, I, I think I misspoke about the date. I, I, you guys started in 06, but the collaborative, I think, maybe could have even been a year or two earlier than that, right? You're right. Yeah, I think it started back in 04. Yeah, yeah. So it was toward the toward the end of the collaborative when the alliance emerged. Right. So again, the focus then, and and which is still now with with the alliance, as you mentioned, all teach, all learn. So we didn't really have any avenues uh, and any way to collaborate with transplant centers or with uh, with hospitals. So we brought just, to, just so everyone can understand, kind of a bigger context. So we brought quite a bit of the critical care physicians from Louisiana nice. that worked with, uh, you know, with the hospitals. They were part of the hospital system and then with us. And then, of course, the transplant uh, surgeons and such so that we can all be in the same place understanding each other, basically talking to each other and helping educate why this is needed and what this is about. And and it's funny how much. You know, uh, when when you when you have that that relationship building and mm-hmm. that you know that better understanding, how much better every part of that process works. So so you guys took that on, and then and then you know I know I followed you guys from afar, you know throughout the years. Uh, you know, uh, Hedy Aguiar was uh, of course uh, I don't want to misspeak on her old title, but I believe like a program director, if I'm not mistaken. And she is, and she, she's she's still working with us in a lot of different capacities. She has her own organization now, but we partner with her in many ways. So, yeah. so I was always closely linked there because she's always she's been a close friend of mine for for years. And you guys did such a great job at at educating, at you know finding things that we would need from an education standpoint, and the most current things, and and kind of uh, filling that gap, educating, training, and stuff. So, can you tell us a little bit? about what you guys do, how, what uh, that education looks like, and how it is that you can be so nimble and, uh, and be able to you know, pivot on a, on a dime and, and start educating about something else like issues with COVID. <laughs> That's what yeah, comes. yeah, no, 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 of course. Well, and, and, and just to clarify a little bit, um, the Alliance full-time team is quite lean. Uh, we only have a handful of full-time staff members. So we are very dependent on professionals in the community from hospitals where donations occur to OPOs to transplant centers. And they volunteer their time to really help articulate and identify these best practices that exist. So we would not exist if it wasn't for the commitment and volunteer efforts of so many professionals in the, in the, in the um, donation transplantation community. So we, we, uh, are grateful for them every single day. So just just to clarify that a little bit, it's it's uh, the Alliance team does a tremendous amount of work to create the platforms and really to to help facilitate and support it. But the great innovations are coming from the professionals in the community. So what we do is we have a variety of different work groups. Uh, in fact, to, currently we have 17. We have another one that's kicking off later this afternoon. So I guess we have 18 now. Um, and these different work groups really identify opportunities um, based on some needs that exist. So some that started long ago were dedicated to a whole series of live programs, and these are all delivered virtually. And so essentially they're webinars, and we call it our live advancement series. And <clears throat> these webinars are set up so that um, 
so that we could identify some key topics, whatever those key topics are, and they might be donation focused or they might be transplantation focused. And then we have a variety of other innovation focused topics and brain death topics. And we, we really work with, um, with these work groups to identify what those key issues are. So they bring them to us and we get them on the calendar, um, typically a year in advance, but if there's an emerging issue, we do that much faster so that we can bring it to the community quickly. Um, so we have a variety of these programs. They're all set up on demand as well, so that it's available to the community. Of course, the people that we work with, as you all know, um, don't necessarily have time at two o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon. So we need to make sure that it's available for them, you know, any time of day, uh, day or night that they may need it. Um, and that's, that's really kind of the way we've approached a lot of our learning programs. We want to make sure that they are accessible. We want to make sure that they're scalable. We want to make sure that they're, that they're relevant for the needs that are, that are out there today. So we have a webinar series. We have uh, another program that we call the conversation series. And it's really structured differently where we present key topics and then we want the, the discussion to take place because that collaboration is where, where real opportunities emerge. So we make sure that that conversation takes place through panels and Q&A and sometimes just through breakout sessions. And again, this is all delivered virtually so that, um, so that people across the nation can participate. And then beyond that, we have, every, we have a sig significant event every year. Typically, it's face-to-face. -face. It's not going to be face-to-face -face this year, and it wasn't last year, but it's one of our large events, and we're really dedicated to bringing in a collection of, frankly, really impressive speakers that participate and that really share some of the uh, current trends in, in the community. So that event's called the National Donor Management Summit. We're having that this year, and then we also have the National Critical Issues Forum which we have every other year. So Joey mentioned COVID. So I guess I'm curious, um, I know it's four, so you guys uh, have the opportunity to, to do that social distancing, but what issues came up with COVID um, that you've heard about that you had to get training on and maybe push out the, those webinars? Because um, that's a topic that I feel we're gonna be talking about for quite some time. Yeah, I, th I think you're right, unfortunately. You know, COVID brought a lot of different challenges to our community. Um, obviously, working with um, COVID-infected donors um, and the community is working toward um, <clears throat> working with donations and, and sharing best practices in that capacity. Um, we're certainly working with our, our workforce, too. I mean, the reality is the healthcare community is exhausted right now. And there's an enormous amount of pressure on on, um, on our team members. So we've been working uh, from that capacity too. Um, it's also affected a lot of uh, just labor structure. So we've been you know developing a lot of uh, collaborations so that we can have those conversations with leaders so that teams can be more nimble. Uh, telehealth is an important um, important uh, topic at this point. So we've held a lot of different topics that are specific to infectious disease and transplantation, but also working within this environment of COVID that we all have to deal with now. 
So the Alliance is all about sharing information so that we can increase the donations and transplantations in this country. Tell us how y'all measure that impact, the impact that you have on this field. Yeah, that's a great question. It's such an important question right now. D- to your point, it, we really look at the Alliance as being a real catalyst, if you will, for igniting some of those advancements. So as new opportunities emerge, DCD, for instance, um, we have had a tremendous amount of a lot of programs dedicated to DCD, and we will continue to in the future. And as we've seen from a lot of the UNOS data, um, those numbers just continue to increase, increase, increase. So while, of course, the results are um, are, are, are due to the education that's taking place. Um, there are so many other factors that are included, but we're, um, we're just incredibly happy to be a part of the, the successful program that exists in the United States related to donation and transplantation and still recognizing the fact that we need to improve it every single day. Yeah. So that's where, that's where we're really, really focused as well. So I was fortunate enough to take part in uh, an alliance I was uh, asked to speak, and I can't even remember at this point because it was probably seven, eight years ago. But I was uh, one of the speakers on a on a previous uh, program that you had, and and it's always such relevant topics. You know, uh, we have quite a bit of our staff that we continuously encourage to make sure that they're staying up on these things because you know we get so ingrained into our own you know, kind of, kind of our own focus. Right. And, and so we kind of lose sight sometimes of the other big aspects, big things, big initiatives that are going on, you know, industry wide. So that's, that's really kind of one of the neat things that it allows us to kind of at the same time, while we're learning about sometimes exactly something that might immediately impact us. And then the next week it might be next time. It might be something that's, you know, it's just a real cool, innovative, you know, idea that that's, we see that kind of benefits on the back end or, or somewhere else. Can you tell us a little bit about what the latest uh, that uh, the Alliance is doing as far as initiatives and things? I know you guys, if, if I'm not mistaken, had gotten into kind of a, a mentorship type program or, or something along those lines. Yeah, we have. We have. Um, and, and you bring up such a good point, Joey, too. There are so many important critical topics to really help move the needle right now. So we're dedicated to so many different different topics, whether it's diversity, equity, and inclusion, or as I mentioned, you know, organ allocation um, changes that are taking place right now, or or um, you know other other topics related to DCD. There are so many topics, and we're continuing pro- continuing to provide those out there. But what we've done in the last several years is we launched a mentor program, and we started, frankly, with the transplant community first. Um, and immediately there was a lot of interest for it. So we kind of we kind of kept an eye on that to see, you know, what where the interest was, and we were asked to extend into the OPO community. So we did that in the second year, and there was a tremendous amount of interest. And um, now we have really invested, frankly, quite a bit into this mentor program. And these the, these mentor mentee matches are basically an and let's say an OPO professional might be an OPO coordinator or someone else in, in the organization that is matched with another OPO leader in a different part of the country. So the idea is they can really stay, stay, help each other, really help develop 
professionally, and also talk about some of these emerging issues, whether it be DEI or DCD or organ allocation or anything, uh, whatever the need is for that mentee at that point in time. And I'm really happy to say we have had in those last few years more than 500 people across the nation participate in this mentor program. So, and this is free to the community. So um, Deanna Fenton leads these efforts and she puts a tremendous amount of time into ensuring, and we have a system that assists with this, but ensuring that we have the right mentor-mentee match. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's the work for the mentor and the mentee, right? So again, it's those volunteers for our community that are really making the difference. But some of the some of the results, uh, some of the testimonials that we've received from some of the mentors have really emphasized the fact that it's, it's, it's really helped them in their career. I can tell you even from a, a, my own personal perspective, you know, I was, I was a recovery coordinator, you know, back in the two, early 2000s and uh, got into to leadership management, uh, I believe in 08 or so. And at the time, uh, the, 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 the director that, that I reported to, she left very shortly after, like within a couple months of me becoming the manager. And I had no immediate guidance right there. You know, and, and of course I had Kelly, you know, Random, our CEO, who's got the whole company to, to worry about. And I, I kind of, there was a void and I didn't have, and then at the time we didn't have, of course now I have a, a hundred of uh, my colleagues that I know now that I can reach out to when I've got, you know, issues. But back then I, I knew no one, you know, really not hardly anyone. And so to if I'm going back, you know, 13 years to 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 know how much I, it would, would have been very valuable to me, I can see 500 people later how much impact it's having on on. The, the, the industry as a whole. I, I applaud you guys for, for seeing that gap and then for pushing that forward like you, you guys did and, and kind of cultivating um, a, a culture that was accepting of it, you know, because I know, you know, again, it's not, it's not that easy uh, to ask for help sometimes and, and for you guys to be able to do that is, is really uh, commendable. Well, it's, it's exciting. And what we're really excited about too is there was interest in the community to be matched with someone in a different part of the continuum. So for instance, an OPO professional that might be interested in being matched with a transplant professional. And I think there's a lot of power in that too, because they can understand the pressures um, and the systems that exist in different, different aspects of the donation and transplantation um, field. So I'm really excited about some of those changes that will be, that will be uh, coming out based on that mentorship program. It seems like a no-brainer. And so I'm like, man, good chance somebody said something back in 2006. <laughs> Where would we be, <laughs> right? Uh, that's something. Um, but so what is, I always like to ask people their, their background. Were you in a, in a donation field? Like you, you sound so passionate uh, about um, making life happen. And so um, where does your passion come from? Oh, I'm, so, I'm so happy you asked that. No, I, I'm actually... Um, I don't come from a donation field. I actually have worked for a long time in education. Um, I worked in the university environment, so I did a lot of work in research and instruction and service. And those are the three tenets, frankly, that have guided my professional path. Um, I did make this change. Uh, if you're interested in some personal experiences, um, my brother-in-law had a heart transplant. He was up in wow. Rochester, New York. 
and um, and lived for five very successful years afterwards. And then about three years ago, my minister actually had a kidney transplant, and um, and actually did didn't didn't live for for much longer after that. But through those personal experiences, I got very involved in the donation transplantation uh, field, and really wanted to take a lot of the background that I had in higher education and in professional education and bring it to this community. So I feel really uh, honored to, to be able to do that today. Um, you know, the, some, some things that I'm frankly really passionate about too, working at the Alliance is really elevating the quality of the educational delivery. So um, the work that we're doing right now of course, um, rolling things out in a virtual environment, um, it's, it can be challenging, but there are some key best practices that exist. We want to be the best of the best. We want to reach our professionals at a time, at a place, and in a way that works best for them. So I, um, I've really enjoyed it, and I've, um, I am. I'm very passionate about this community, but also about creating the right experience for people so that it's easy and accessible. And we have an incredible team of people at the Alliance. Corey Bryant has done so much work for us to really listen to what people need and create delivery mechanisms so, um, so that it's delivered in a way that's helpful for them. Nice. And where do we find all this great information? <laughs> I'm going to look it up, yeah. sister. <laughs> uh, yeah, just go to our website. It's at organdonationalliance.org. Okay. And again, this is this is material that's focused on professionals in the community, not for the public per se or <clears throat> patients per se, but certainly for uh, professionals in the community at organdonationalliance.org. And all of that information is currently listed there. Perfect. Well, we appreciate your time today explaining um, the history. I know we were all excited uh, when we get to learn a little bit more uh, and especially highlight our partners that bring so much to what we do. So we appreciate you. Well, great. Well, thanks again to, to you all and for LOPA for being one of our professional partners. We're taking a moment for mental health. Yes, we are, Sarah. What do you have on store today for happy, us? Happy, happy, happy. We are talking about happiness. <laughs> well, maybe not. We're talking about the myths of the happiness. Myths. Okay. So there's lots of those like sayings out there, right, about like how to be happy, all these like, you know, kind of. Like money doesn't bring you happiness. Yes, it does. It buys a boat. <laughs> well, I'm that's kidding. actually one of my points. That's liter that is actually a myth about happiness, that money will bring you happiness. Actually, there's tons of research and literature, and I've actually talked about this on our podcast, that money won't bring you happiness. The cap kind of they have is at $85,000 a year. Once you reach that, everything after that is not going to make you happier. Once you're comfortable and you have your basic needs met and you can buy like one or two things for yourself here and there and you don't have to worry about buying food, really the rest of the money is not going to make you happy. And we see that. We see rich people who are oh, yeah. not happy in their yeah. lives. So it's true. That's that's why reality TV shows are such a hit. Like it's a bunch of rich people <laughs> who aren't that, happy, uh, yeah. <laughs> or, or who pretend to be. Yes, that's dun, exactly dun, dun, right. Myths. Yes. Um, let's talk about another myth. Um, you're only happy if you're always happy. Yeah. Not true. I mean, I, I get it. I try happy. to always be happy, though. 
But I get it. Sometimes it's like, uh, well, I think that's the point. I'm not always happy. (laughs) Sure. But I think that's the point is that don't put all this pressure on yourself that you have to define your life as I'm happy only if I'm always happy. And so when you have bad moments, when you're in the dumps a little bit, you're your world crumbles because, oh, gosh, now I'm not a happy person because was, I'm having a bad day. Yeah, that was one of our interviews um, on this podcast. And he said, I just felt that I had to put this show on yeah. for others because I was going through this. And he said I had to allow myself yeah. to just mm-hmm. breathe and be real. Yeah. Yes, recognize your suffering, recognize your pain, and know that you don't have to be happy every single day of your life to be living a happy life and to have a lot to be thankful for and grateful for. I think that's it, though. You, you hit the, the, the thankful and grateful part is it enables me to almost be happy all the time. And yeah. I'm not just and I'm not just saying this as a front or anything. You know, I I constantly reground myself. I find, you know, because uh, to me, bad things happen to me, right? To and they happen to yeah. you. They sure. happen yeah. to you. And and like and for me, I always go to, well, it's, you know, it's it's might this might seem like terrible to me, but what you know, and then I think about people who are going through much that that are personally connected with me mm-hmm. that are going through much worse things or mm-hmm. have had worse trials and tribulations than I have. And it, it kind of regrounds me to well, so this isn't bad, so I can stay happy. And I guess right. maybe I try to be happy too often, you know, and, and maybe that is the case. I, I, I don't I don't try to do it, you know, to, in my mind, it's not too much, but I, I, I like I, I try to be happy all the time because like but I think really... that's I think that's great. I think but the point is that everybody has their own experiences of what makes them happy. And so for you, I think like pushing yourself to be grateful and remind yourself that you know you have so much to be thankful for, that brings you happiness and joy and peace probably mm-hmm. in your life. Some people, nothing bad has ever, quote unquote, happened to them, and they still suffer with anxiety and mm-hmm. depression, right. and they don't feel happy. So don't put pressure on yourself that the only time you can be happy is when good things are happening. Another myth. Mm-hmm. Waiting for things to get better to find your happiness. There's so much that each individual goes through, and I think putting less pressure on yourself to fulfill what happy, quote unquote, is I think can cause a lot of stress. So just know that each person finds happiness the way that they find happiness. Mm-hmm. You find joy and peace and what brings you joy and peace. I right. mean, really. Yeah. And so being grateful for you, that's that. And you should keep going. For other people, it could be different things. Um, you know, we talked earlier about connecting outside of ourselves. So knowing that you're not alone, that if you are going through a hard time, that there's others who are going through a hard time too. You know, we talk about how much that makes you feel better when you know you're not alone. And then mm-hmm. you'll find your happiness. You'll find mm-hmm. what brings you joy. I think during the pandemic, you know, a lot of people had to take a hard look at that. Mm-hmm. And and I was just fine. I was like, oh, my little babies, everybody's safe. Like, I was like, check, check, check. Okay, I'm happy now. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I don't need to be out. I don't need to be all hair and makeup. Thank goodness that was like a <laughs> right. relief. Um, and fun things like that. So, yeah, like just kind of sim- simplified a lot of things. Yeah. yeah. But when we're going through crisis, I mean, that's another myth is when life is normal again, I'll be happy again. But know that look for it now. Don't wait for th- other things outside of yourself to be better 
or to be normal for you to find your happiness. You can always find happiness in any circumstance. You don't need to wait for the storm to pass. You can sometimes dance in the rain. That's, I mean, that's oh, it. oh, he wasn't even reading. No, but you know, that's the thing. I kind of live by that. Mm-hmm. And me and my wife actually talk about that. So, so you get caught up so much in waiting to be happy when something happens. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. And then instead of just, like I said, look, I, I'm, I'm almost... 48 years old at this point so most of my life i know it's amazing my hair is 35 you know i am almost 48 and and i realize that most of my life is probably over and and you when you when you come to that realization mm-hmm. you like it 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 just allows you to enjoy the journey so much more like look yeah. you know don't waste a day there's yeah. no point there's you know, no, it, you know, we're on this because it feels like a shark. It's it feels like just a couple, you know, two or three years ago that I was in my teens to me. And so to be able to, yeah, no, it, it feels like it was two or three were, years. You were, you were, <laughs> we're happy to confirm that's not the case. I mean, according to my, my colored hair, it is. <laughs> so, but, but my point being is just, you know, it, it makes you enjoy the day even though i know in a you know a year or so this is going to make my life hopefully a little easier or this is going to happen to make it better whatever that is it's all about just enjoying that day and looking for the little pieces of that day that bring you the happiness yep and you know that makes me think i've heard from a lot of people that you know when something tragic happens in their life if they have a moment of something that makes them laugh or happy they immediately get this like flood of guilt and shame for feeling happiness when they're supposed Mm -hmm. to be going through the worst times of their lives i think to your point just live in it whatever it's happening just live in it allow yourself to be happy i think that's one of the ways we can be happy is knowing that you deserve to be happy don't worry yeah. <laughs> that was an older term. Now I just dated myself. I like that. Maybe you have a topic you'd like Sarah to cover. Email us info at thegiftedlife.org. In our question and answer segment, Joey, we have one for you. Who regulates OPOs in the United States? So, wow, that's a. Uh, a big topic and a hot topic <laughs> these days, mm-hmm. uh, because it is somewhat possibly going to change. Um, that at least been some of the things that have been funneled my way uh, as of right now. So HRSA, uh, Health Resource and Services Administration, is a branch of the Department of Health and Human Services, the, the HHS, basically the government, mm-hmm. uh, the arm of the government that oversees all of healthcare, right? Mm-hmm. So, so HRSA is an offshoot of, of that, and they regulate the whole recovery and transplant process through OPTN, the Organ Procurement and Transplant Network. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know OPTN better as the, the contract agency that, that, that owns the contract right now, uh, UNOS, United Network of Organ Sharing. So that's how that ties in. Mm-hmm. So this all came about from NODA, uh, the National Organ Transplant Act in 1984, uh, because at, at the time there was no really regulatory mm-hmm. body. So I'd spoken about that in a previous mm-hmm. uh, podcast. You know, that kind of started the formation of the OPOs. You know, we had a couple OPOs, organ procurement organizations before, but really not hardly any. So that kind of uh, put some regula- regulation in the the list uh, and started forming basically this whole de- uh, OPTN, Organ Procurement Transplant Network, 
uh, that we now follow kind of as, as our, our guide mm-hmm. uh, and our rules, uh, policies and such. That's a mouthful. Yes, it is. <laughs> but you did a really good job with the acronyms, too. I'm glad you did that, too, to walk us through. There's HRSA, HHS, OPTM, all of that. So there's a lot to know. You know, CMS. <laughs> I've heard of CMS. How are they involved? Oh, yeah. I can't forget CMS. So CMS, of course, is Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And they are the ones responsible for uh, conducting reviews and site surveys for all the OPOs and the transplant centers because ultimately uh, they play a big part in the funding. Good to know. Thanks, Joe. If you have a question, give us a call. 504-648-3477. In every episode of The Gifted Life, we honor a hero. Today, we honor Ivana Butler. And we learn about Ivana from her family. Realization is starting to kick in that we have to say goodbye to a close friend, trying to ignore what took place, but the truth is staring in my face. We were all just laughing around, but when this happened, I could not stop begging for your life. It's not going to be the same. Now I'm looking at a picture of your fighting hands. I know you had to go, but it doesn't make it any less painful. I didn't know you as long as everyone else, but you still became my little sister. I just hope you know when you took your last breath, your big bro gonna miss ya. Love your big bro, Chris. Ivana was a three-year honor graduate of Connections Academy. She had obtained a full scholarship to any state university in the U.S. Also, she was a talented artist and a certified genius. And now we pause and say thank you to Ivana for the gift of life. And that is episode 168 of The Gifted Life. Thanks so much for listening, guys. And remember, if you're not registered as an organ, tissue, and eye donor, you can do so anytime. We hope that you do. Registerme.org. Special thanks to Carrie Hobson Pope for coming in and, and sharing with us of the initiatives and everything going on with the Alliance. And it's just amazing when you think about this, that since their existence, they've helped organ donation rates increase by 55%. Wow. From over 8,000 to to over 12,000 in that time frame. So great job by the Alliance. It's always nice to have them in our corner to help, you know, with all those initiatives and those education pieces that, that we're so desperately needing. Yep. Good work, guys. The best place to find us on our website, thegiftedlife.org. You can listen to any of our episodes on our website or wherever you like to listen, whether it's Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or Apple. If you do listen on Apple, please leave us a five-star rating so that others can find us. And did you know we're on Facebook, The Gifted Life Podcast? Give us a like there. Follow us. And you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Gifted Life Pod. Thanks for joining us, guys. We hope that you continue to do so and help share this podcast. But our main ask is that you go out and do something you wouldn't normally do to help us make life happen. Bye-bye. This is a production of LOPA, or the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency. The Gifted Life is hosted by Lori Steele, Joey Boudreaux, and Sarah Blakemore. Our executive producer is Kirsten Hines. Producer is Shalon Caraway. Intern is Rebecca Ranham. And we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez. 